Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. And welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. Every Sunday, we release a new episode covering a different case or topic of interest. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Hello, and welcome to Crime and Spirits. My name is Bree. And I'm Suze. Thank you so much for joining us for the very last installment of this year's Serial Killer oh, Summer. We made it through all of these horrible, horrible people. Oh my goodness. And it we, was so interesting, though. I feel was. like we've learned a lot. Oh my gosh, so much. <laughs> Even cases that I was somewhat familiar with and cases that I'm not, like BTK, because mm-hmm. <laughs> this one was like, holy shit. Yeah, I thought... <laughs> So when we got into this one, I thought I knew, mm-hmm. but I had no freaking idea. Yeah. That's a tagline from something I feel, but like, I really had no clue. No, for real. Turns out. Honestly. Because <laughs> people, some people are worse than you ever imagine. <laughs> I think what gets me the most, and we're going to get into when we get into the episode more, is the fact that he was able to hide. The... In plain sight? Yes. Mm-hmm. Like the worst part of himself for a long time. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. It's off-putting. It's, that's putting it mildly, yes. It's something. <laughs> now, on the off chance that you have no idea what we're talking about. Okay, yes, yes. <laughs> last week, we introduced you guys to one of America's most notorious killers, Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK. This man's responsible for taking the lives of 10 people, and it, his activity lasted about two decades, like just under. However, the murders went unsolved for even longer. As we mentioned previously... This one's a doozy. Dennis Rader is a sexual deviant and a murderer who enjoyed doing all of the things he did. And wow, we were they not good. Um, this episode will involve the discussion of bondage and strangulation. Those are integral parts of his M.O. and of all these attacks. So just keep that in mind. Absolutely. We also need to mention that while rape is not part of Raider's MO, there is a disturbing sexual element to the murders. So just heads up on all of the things Mm -hmm. it's gross it's awful and we're gonna need a drink yes like so many drinks (laughs) so to offset it we're gonna just stay in our happy little family of cocktails Mm -hmm. last week we made a bay breeze basically it was a vodka cranberry with pineapple juice easy peasy i mentioned that there is a whole family of vodka cranberry based cocktails (laughs) yes so this week we're making up a sea breeze a sea breeze is a cocktail containing vodka with cranberry juice and plot twist grapefruit juice. <laughs> uh, um, this cocktail is usually consumed during summer months, which is why I thought it would be perfect. This drink 
should be shaken in order to create a foamy surface. It just made it pretty and bubbly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just blended it better. I agree. Last week we did the layered thing, but this week we just gave it a shake to switch things up. Uh, this cocktail itself was born in the late 1920s, but the recipe was very, very different from the one used today. Hmm. Near the end of the Prohibition era, the Seabreeze combined gin and grenadine. Uh Okay. No, thank you. That sounds disgusting. Hard pass. Gin and grenadine? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. it? Yep. Gross. And in the 30s, a sea breeze was gin, apricot brandy, grenadine, and lemon juice. I don't think that made it any better. Ooh. I don't know. Maybe apricot gin Apricot brandy? Gin and apricot brandy might be all right, but what's with the grenadine? Why we just want to make thing? it pretty, I think. You want to make it red. Mm. That's all. <laughs> all right. I'm not sure about that combo either. Um. <laughs> At some point in the history of a sea breeze, the recipe would contain vodka, dry dry vermouth, galliano, and blue curacao. Hmm. So are we just throwing random things in a shaker and seeing how it turns out? Because that sounds weird to me. It's like a martini with galliano and blue curacao. That does sound weird. Is it going to be good or is it disgusting? I don't Uh. know. We have all the things to make it. Oh, no. I don't know, guys. I don't know if I can stomach it. We might have to. We maybe will try it so they don't have so, to. So, yes, that can be part of that series. <laughs> yeah. So, starting in the 60s, the Breeze family of cocktails were sporadically in the top 10 most popular cocktails, like mixed drink-wise. According to some sources, the Cran family of cocktails did not really become super popular until the 70s. Now, with the Cosmos mm. and stuff like mm. that, you Love know, Cosmos. Sex in the City got the Cosmo train mm. rolling again. That's, so, for the record, that is not why I love Cosmo. Me either. It's because they're delicious. Because <laughs> they're so good. <laughs> so, we are going to introduce grapefruit juice this week. It's rich in vitamin C and ranges from sweet tart to very sour. Variations include white grapefruit, pink grapefruit, and ruby red grapefruit. We are using the ruby red because that was literally all I could find. That was not $8 for 12 ounces of juice. And I love y'all, but I am not squeezing grapefruit juice from scratch. She literally was like, I am not doing it. And I was like, it's okay. You don't have to. I'm not juicing grapefruits. Oranges, lemons, limes. Okay. Grapefruits are just. That's where you draw the line. I don't even know how you juice a grapefruit. They're the size of a baby's head. (laughs) Who makes a juicer that size? I don't have one like that. We certainly, it took us a lot to find the juicer that we have. It it was a struggle, yes. Um, Grapefruit juice is important in medicine because of its interactions with many common drugs. Yes. Including caffeine and some medications, which can actually alter how they behave in the body. So just a heads up. There are some medications that will be interfered with if you drink grapefruit juice. I know my dad is on heart medicine. Mm -hmm. He cannot have can't even look at a grapefruit or it will fuck up how it is absorbed into his body i used to take an anti-anxiety medication that basically told me that it wouldn't mess with the medication but that it would cause a buildup of a specific i don't know compound or something Mm -hmm. that could be deadly right once it's released yeah because my system wouldn't know what to do with it that's mm mm-hmm and honestly, yeah. thank God for Mark, because Brie was young and stupid and just took medication without reading about it. And right. thank God he took it upon himself to figure that out because I was on that for years. And I'm just saying, I love that you want to have cocktails with us. But if it's going to interfere with your like, heart medicine or your yeah. anxiety medicine, like for the love of God, don't do it. Just pass. Please we're don't. not we're not using a lot of grapefruit juice, but it's just not worth the risk. It's really not. So have a classic um, vodka cranberry instead or just reuse your pineapple juice from last week. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. 
cats or literally <laughs> anything else but you know something that could kill you right <laughs> so this week we're keeping a lot of things the same um we switched to a highball glass this week that was really it outside of the grapefruit juice um we're using our pa proud faber vodka again we're also using our famous cranberry juice cocktail <laughs> um <laughs> i did pick up some ruby red grapefruit juice i prefer the ruby red as it's a little bit sweeter than plain old grapefruit juice but again like i don't know if grapefruits are struggling right now but i couldn't yeah. find many options so um ruby red grapefruit bt dubs also lowers bad cholesterol um as well as triglyceride levels it also uh is responsible for lowering the chances of a person developing colon and lung cancer all good things. I'm digging it. For yeah. the record, I am no longer on the medication. Yes. It is safe for me to I consume this cocktail. Quadruple check we before have we proceeded down this Everything route. is fine. <laughs> so um, I'm excited because I haven't actually had grapefruit anything in, in like 10 years. Yeah, girl, so it's delicious. We're living it up today. All right. So to mix up the cocktail, finally, um, grab your shaker tin. Like I said, we're going to shake it up this week. Yeah, quite literally. Um, fill your tin with ice, add one and a half ounces of the Faber vodka. Again, we're using the unflavored version, but if you want to get fancy, throw some fruit in there, flavor, Ooh. citrus, orange, whatever floats your That would probably, probably be really good. Whatever blows your hair back. Yeah. Um, add two ounces of the cranberry juice cocktail and two ounces of the ruby red grapefruit juice to the shaker. Shake it all up till it's nice and chilly. And then take your glassware. Don't care if it's coffee mug, highball, glass, whatever blows your hair back. What Whatever you're drinking out of is a-okay by me. Mm -hmm. um, fill it up with fresh ice and strain your mixed cocktail right over the ice. Garnish it all with a fresh lime wedge. Again, I recommend squeezing it into the drink because it does make a slight difference. Mm. Good, right? That is really good. Again, this is a classic cocktail. It's so easy Easy to make, mm. minimal ingredients, minimal work. You don't even have to shake it. You can just build it in your glass and stir it with your straw. Whatever makes your heart happy. Last <laughs> week, I dropped my lime wedge before mm -hmm. we started recording. And it was just too late, so I didn't get to have it. But, but this week, I have it, and I got to squeeze it. And I really enjoy having the citrus like that it in makes, there. It does make a difference. Yeah. I Granted, it was pineapple versus grapefruit, but still, the lime... And like I said, I prefer the ruby red grapefruit. But again, they've got blends and stuff out there that are like so off the wall. If that if that's what you want to mix in. Is it like cranberry juice? Like there's just like mm -hmm. a stupid amount of things that you can so, like put with it. I was looking at Walmart and there was literally just a whole aisle of like juices that were blended. Like oh. cran apple, apple grape, peach grape, <laughs> you know, mango, orange, banana, like... <laughs> Stuff that I was like, well, I don't know if I'd put that together, but I'm kind of want to try it. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I just want to try little ones, though. All they have is yeah. a giant wall of giant containers of it. Did you ever drink what the juice? What if I hate it? Oh, I think it was called Five Alive. No. Oh, man, that was my shit growing up. But you can't find it anymore. Did they? But it was five it? different, like, citrus family, like orange, you know, like all that kind of. It was like orange juice and it had a bunch of other different fruits in it. Is it like it. tang flavored, though? I don't know. I can't. I can't remember. Sunny D and Tang. No, I didn't like that. It was mm -mm. no. It's, it's it was be more real like juice. Yeah, it was more. <laughs> you bought it with the real juices. It wasn't mm. like that Sunny D shenanigans. But my mom used to buy it all the time when I was growing up. And I remember one day as an adult, I went to go look for it at the store, and it was gone. 
I can't find it anywhere. I'm and I can't you. find anybody else who drink it. So if you're out there and you knew about Five Alive, please shout it out. Come talk to me about it. It's how I feel about Zima's. Oh my God, Zima's. Put a Jolly Rancher in one of them bitches and I'm underage drinking by a campfire oh, again. Man. I'm telling you, girl, life changing. One of my friends' moms, that was all they drank. You Zima's. can't do that with malt beverages and seltzers now. Mm-mm. Not like you used to. Oh, memories. <laughs> God, I'm Aww. old. All right, great. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> Now that we've got our cocktails mixed up and ready to roll, here's a quick word from some of our friends over at the Podmoth Network. Hey everyone, Dave here to tell you about my show Cryptic Cocktail Party. Looking for a good time filled with laughter, intriguing tales, and a splash of the supernatural? Well, maybe I can help. Every week I bring on a rotating cast of guests to have a few drinks, share a few laughs, and take a dive into the unknown. Join us as we raise our glasses and tell the tales of some of the world's most famous cryptids, from the legendary Grafton monster to the elusive Dover demon and the enigmatic Mothman. Well, that's not all. Our party spills over into the world of the extraterrestrial, encounter the spine-chilling Flatwoods monster, the mischievous Hopkinsville goblin, and uncover the truth about infamous alien encounters. You need a dash of mystery? We got you covered. Delve into mind-blowing conspiracy theories such as the infamous Philadelphia experiment and the secrets hidden within the Denver airport. Cryptic Cocktail Party is a weekly comedy podcast that guarantees laughter, curiosity, and a few surprises along the way. Cheers to the unknown. All right. Are you ready? As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> I feel better armed with a cocktail. Absolutely. Though. Took a couple sips while, while you were gone. Okay, so let's get into it. Last time we went over Raider's background, what his childhood was like. All that jazz. What we learned was disturbing, to say the very least. He was having bondage fantasies at a very young age. As a teen, he started to dabble in fetishes like voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation, and cross-dressing, which was basically him wearing women's underwear while spying on his neighbors. The women's underwear that he had taken, Mm -hmm. right, from them. A lot of the time, yeah. Creepy. And then as he got older, his impulses began to just have like a much more violent undertone to them. And he even started hurting animals. As is tradition for serial killers, there came a point in which the fantasies were just no longer good enough. And Raider's behavior escalated into what we now know as his M.O. It's stalking, binding, torturing and killing women. And their families sometimes because he's a horrible person. Depending on if he was feeling froggy that day. Right. So Dennis Rader was active between the years 1974 to 1991. During that time, he would stalk countless women. You may remember that he called them projects, assigned them numbers, Mm. the whole nine yards, and he would go on to eventually kill 10 people. One thing about Dennis Rader is that there were large chunks of time during which he wouldn't commit any murders. These often lined up with big life events in his family, like just for one example, when he had children. By the time his son was born in 1975, he had already killed five people, which, going back to last week, was the Otero family and Catherine Bright. These took place literally within months of each other, just as a reference if you weren't here for that. The next murder didn't occur until two years later. In his own testimony, he said that he was just too busy at the time with a new baby at home, and he just couldn't go out at night to troll the streets of Wichita just looking for unsuspecting women. And this is part of the reason why he was so successful at hiding who he truly was. 
He was incredibly involved in his family and his community throughout his entire adult life. He Mm. was a scout leader. He was an active member of his church. Like, crazy, crazy shit. Talk about playing the part of normalcy to a T. Yeah, it's such a 180 to what we were talking about last week. Yes. Um... Now, most serial killers do have these cooling off periods, but this length of time was uncommon, especially when there was a sexual motivation to commit the crime in the first place. And we know that Raider was 100% driven by a sexual impulse. So how exactly was he able to keep it in check for so long? Well, you're going to be really upset that you asked because the answer is gross. So gross. (laughs) And again, the interweb is very vast, Mm y'all. It's all out there for you to see. (laughs) So he would often dress in women's clothing, sometimes specifically the items that belong to a victim. And then he would indulge in some autoerotic asphyxiation. Again, it's on the Internet if you really want to search for it. Mm -hmm. If you dare. Godspeed, my children. Um, Between this and taunting the police via handwritten letters, Raider was able to take his time in between murders. Savor it, if you will. Oh, gross. (laughs) <laughs> mm. Just in case you don't remember, the police had arrested and charged three men for the Otero murder- murders. They allegedly had confessed to the crimes, like lock, stock, and barrel. It was reported in the media that the police had caught the killers, and Dennis Rader didn't like that. So he contacted police in the most nonsensical way and set the record straight. It was in that first letter that he deemed himself as BTK. These letters over what we're going to see decades Mm -hmm. (laughs) they just spoke volumes as to what kind of person the police were dealing with from the scenes themselves it was obvious that the killer intended to traumatize their victim they wanted to cause as much suffering as they could it was part of what thrilled them the most this is a common theme among sexually oriented killers they have this excessive need for power and control The attacks, the torture, the up close and personal way of killing them, contacting the police, all of this makes them feel powerful and important. The arrogance in which Raider wrote his messages to law enforcement is just staggering. He could not stand the fact that someone else might get credit, quote unquote, for what he considers to be one of his greatest accomplishments. Also, quote unquote. Cringe. That's the thing. You guys will just see this common thread throughout the rest and and how all of this culminated is just so fucking wild to me. It really is. He he literally had an out. He -hmm. had an out. And he was out. He couldn't stand it. They were ready to charge these people. These people, I mean, again, we don't know what happened, but allegedly they confessed. It seemed like a slam dunk as far as the police were concerned. They were very upset when they realized that that was not that the was case. That was not the case. Mm-hmm. Now, when we were all last together, we left off at the birth of Dennis Rader's daughter. This occurred in 1978. Like we said before, the last time he had a child, it took him two years before he would attack again. This time, he only took half that time off. On April 28, 1979, Rader broke into the home of Anna Williams. Anna was actually out at the time, so he made himself comfortable, and he waited for hours because she still hadn't (laughs) returned home. He got pissed slash frustrated. So mad. (laughs) He just didn't want to wait any longer, so he left. 
Later, Anna received a note that said, and I quote, be glad you weren't here because I was, end quote. Terrifying. Right. So you're never going to feel comfortable in your home ever again. I would. I would burn it to the ground. I was going to say, I would never step (laughs) foot in that house again. No, no, no. He also, just to up the creepy factor, included one of her own scarves, likely as a scare tactic slash proof that he was, in fact, in her home at one point instead of just bluffing about it type of deal. A joke, quote unquote. You know how people are when Uh, this kind of shit happens. They think it's funny to... Till it's not. Right. Right. <laughs> um, police actually believe that Anna's daughter was the target due to Anna being much older than his typical victimology. But we'll see this week that that's not really the case. Raider was not happy about this failed attack. And he would later go on the record saying that he was absolutely livid that she had managed to evade him. Livid. Not just mad. Not well, just frustrated. Of, livid. Of course, because, I mean, we went over it last week. He had a backup plan for his backup plan for his backup plan. He only, and I say only, not in like, a, it was only 10 people, but like over the time span, he killed 10 people, but he had stalked countless so women. Many more. He had so many women that he had eyes on at different times well, and, and he, they were all backup plans he had a lot of information on these women mm-hmm. their work schedules how to get into their house like he, it, everything all but ensured that when he decided to go out and do this somebody was he was be going yep. to do it right and so i mean i'm i feel like absolutely livid is like an underestimation of right. what he probably was actually feeling. Oh, I'm sure. I certainly would not have wanted to have been in his home. No. Because I'd be curious what that night was like mm-hmm. afterwards. You know what I mean? Yes. So soon after, Raider graduated from Wichita State University with a degree in administration of justice. Mm-hmm. You may recall right. that Raider showed off this knowledge in that very first letter to the police. And... It was an interesting take because he had there was poor grammar used throughout the letter, but the author had zero problem basically diagnosing himself as someone who's, quote, psychotic with sexual perversion hangups. Like. So you can't spell potato, but you know all that. <laughs> OK, I great. do always find that really interesting about people because you and I have both known people over the course of our lives that so smart. Would hit get hit crossing the road. Right. Absolutely. Like, it's definitely possible, but. Or is it a put on? Is this all just some big facade, like everything else in his life? You know, I don't know. I feel like if he. I mean, he definitely thought he was the smartest person in the room. So I feel like if he By knew far. better with grammar, then he probably would have. Yeah. But it could. I could also see it being a way to throw off I the just, police. I, I, I don't know with this man. Yeah. Like I said, I thought I knew. Yeah. I have no freaking idea. That's a very fair point. Now, Raider won't kill again until 1985. In the meantime, law enforcement released the 1977 recording of Raider's 911 call. You might remember that he had called and reported the murder of Nancy Fox mm-hmm. right after he had committed said murder. Now, the police released the recording in the hopes that someone would recognize the voice and hopefully give the police a tangible lead. They started playing it on August 15th, 1979. And within those first few days, the police received a minimum of 110 tips, which gave them nothing. Uh, They all amounted to bupkis. Literally literally zero. (laughs) Nothing. 
So in 1983, after several years of dead ends and probably a lot of frustration, I can only imagine, (laughs) two teams of detectives were assigned to reinvestigate the murders. So they set out on a cross-country trip and intended to collect all of these saliva and blood samples that they could. So with them, they took a list of over 200 people that had been flagged by their computer system as prime suspects, and they were determined to literally track every single person down the good news here is all but five men willingly gave the samples being requested of them probably because they had not done anything wrong right (laughs) the tests were run and eliminated 188 of the names leaving 12 possibilities five of these names of course were the men who ultimately refused to give any samples because you're guilty of something even if it's not this right that means you're guilty obviously you are concerned they're going to find something Mm mm-hmm Now, the following year, the Ghostbusters were formed. Police Chief Lemunian established a task force devoted entirely to solving BTK's crime. And yes, they were nicknamed after the movie, which is just kind of neat. I mean, if you have to do something horrible, like investigate a horrible crime, crimes like this, I want to at least have a badass nickname. I want a cool nickname. I want to be cool like Bill Murray. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I do. I do know. Same. (laughs) Now this task force would go on to painstakingly organize and preserve any valuable evidence that had been collected over the years. In the beginning stages, they initially locked on to the location of the crimes and they believed it to be the greatest key to solving this case. All the crimes took place within a small three and a half mile radius, which led investigators to believe that BTK only really felt comfortable killing in areas that were familiar to him. Per Lieutenant Al Stewart, he's now retired. They, quote, tried a hundred thousand theories and they really did, you guys, because they checked house numbers, the victim's length of residency, the phases of the moon. And apparently they also read a shit ton of books looking for any kind of quote unquote arcane connections to mythology, witchcraft and demonology. So it's not like they weren't trying. You know, you have no, no data to base anything off of no evidence really other than this person is fucked up. Like I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, though, when somebody first suggested like, do you guys want to see if there was like a full moon, maybe? Okay, so I'm not I'm not trying to be funny, but I am laughing in my head a little yes. bit because I'm picturing like 70s slash yes. early 80s detectives like <laughs> busting out tarot books and yes. tracking moon phases. And I just they're probably like, this is some bullshit. I think the reason I find it so funny is that I actively do those things now. And so like I'm trying I picture the same thing. Right. Like, I don't know. In full suits, like this is bullshit. It's, it's almost comical. If it wasn't surrounding it wasn't what so it was, horrible, yes. it would be funny to picture that. But again, if you can't laugh a little bit, we're just going to cry and be sad. So I just have a dark humor, guys. It's, it's why true. you're here. Don't lie to yourself. Right. <laughs> so during the fall of 1984, one of the task force investigators took the BTK letter from February of 1978 to the Xerox headquarters in Syracuse, New York. You guys, the Xerox headquarters. I didn't know that was a thing. I did not know <laughs> such a place existed. I know. I wonder this if is it's like, still there, actually. I'm this curious. is like some badass information that they got from it, the headquarters really, of Xerox. <laughs> I don't understand the technology behind it, but there was a lab technician who concluded that the letter was a fifth generation copy of the original. 
which made it virtually impossible to trace. So he took a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, <laughs> right? Um, additionally, the technician was actually able to pinpoint where the copy came from. The machine used was located specifically at the Wichita State University Library. So, so many people uh-huh. had access Everybody. to this machine. Everybody and their mom. Unfortunately... This got police no closer to catching BTK. Now, at this point, it had been eight years since Raider had last committed a murder. Then, in the spring of 1985, out of literally nowhere, he struck again. But this time, it was in his very own neighborhood. Like, down the street. Quite literally. The victim was 53-year-old Marine Hedge. She lived on the same block as the Raiders for many years and had interacted with Dennis himself on several occasions. I believe I read a quote from his daughter saying that she waved to him or vice versa on the way to church every weekend. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's that image. Now, her body wasn't found until May 5th, 1985, but she was actually killed on April 27th. Raider was attending a Boy Scout meeting when he just suddenly feigned a headache. He told the others that he had to get out of there and needed some meds, and he left the meeting. When he got into his car, he drove to a nearby bowling alley. He bought himself a beer, sat down, spilled a little bit on himself, trying to act drunk pretty much. He was Mm -hmm. just kind of creating an alibi, if you will. Yes. A reason for his car to still be parked in the parking lot. So much forethought here. It's ridiculous. The fucking premeditation Mm -hmm. that has... All of the murders, every single one, has been premeditated to a severe extent. This one, I feel like, has such an escalation to it. Oh, yeah. There's so much thought that went into this. So he's at this bowling alley bar... And he is basically acting like he's a drunken fool. So he calls a cab, still pretending to be drunk, and asks the driver to take him to Park City. And I just, if it wasn't this awful human, I'd be like, wow, that's such a smart ruse to like leave your car there. Yes, but I, I hate it. Save that stuff for affairs, not for murder. You know? <laughs> right. Oh. Right. <laughs> Anyways. So not what I expected I'm, you to say. Well, if you're gonna, I mean, if you're gonna not put mad about it into something, geez, no, you're please. right. You're right. Ugh. <laughs> so when Dennis arrived at her home, he saw Maureen's car in the driveway. So he's thinking she's home. He commenced with his plan. He cut the phone lines. He snuck in through the back door. Much to his dismay, however, Maureen was not home. Again, he waited for her in a bedroom closet this time. When she finally arrived home, though, she wasn't alone. But by 1 a.m., her friend, her man friend, had left, and she promptly fell asleep. This is when Raider suddenly jumped from the closet, turned on the bathroom light, jumped onto her, and literally strangled her to death with his bare hands. Once she was dead, Raider put her body into the trunk of her own car and drove her to Christ Lutheran Church. By the way... Raider was president of this particular church's council, so he was a trusted member of the congregation, and he had keys to the building. Because of course he did. Of course. Why would he not have easy access to (laughs) to this place? When he arrived, he took her down into the basement. He covered the windows with black sheets and proceeded to take photos of her body in various bondage positions. 
This part of the attack was just as premeditated as everything else. He had stashed black plastic sheets and other materials in anticipation of this moment happening because he knew some way, somehow, it was going to happen. I was just going to say, like Brie mentioned earlier, if it wouldn't have been Maureen, it would have been somebody else. Yep. Because he had a backup plan for his backup for his backup. Yeah. So terrifying. And this also kind of blows the the police thinking this is what makes me think that Anna may have very well been the target. Cause I don't Absolutely. necessarily believe that age really had a lot to do with it. it I don't I think, think it he was cared at all more. I think it was more gender necessarily than anything. And mm-hmm. that he was able to just do like what he needed to do. Like, I would think availability. I hate yeah. to phrase it like that, but I mean, single women, they all older. have different, like they all have different lifestyles. They mm-hmm. all have different, appearances there's not really a lot that is a common thread right if you will other than raider saw them at some point and decided that they were project number whatever ew i gross now when he was finished he removed marine's body from the church and he took her to a remote area and just left her in a ditch so her car was found on may 2nd the next day, the police recovered her purse, which was in a ditch not too far from where her body was actually found. And they didn't actually find her until May 5th, like I mentioned. Poor lady. So a year went by before Raider would strike again. 28-year-old Vicki Weggerly was found murdered inside of her home September 16th, 1986. She was found clothed, gagged, and bound on the floor. It appeared as if she had been strangled with a nylon stocking. The killer had cut the phone lines, but instead of breaking into the home, he apparently used a ruse to gain entry. He told Vicky that he was with the phone company and he was checking the lines in the neighborhood. So, of course, she was like, come on in. As soon as he got inside, however, he pulled out a gun and then took Vicky to her bedroom. Once in the room, she was able to break out of her restraints and she put up a hell of a fight. Vicky scratched and clawed at Raider, but he was eventually able to unfortunately overpower her. He didn't walk away without some cuts and scratches, though, so at least she hurt him a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, After her death, Raider took photos of her body in various positions, cleaned up a little, and got the heck out of Dodge. He did actually steal her car and used it as his getaway vehicle. Not so fun fact. Vicky's husband, Bill, was on his way home when he literally saw his own vehicle heading in the opposite direction, being driven by a strange man and not his wife. <laughs> so when Bill... What are the odds? I know. Like, what are the chances? And it was that close. Would yeah. he have been a victim? Would he have been able to save her? I don't know. Mm. Like, I, You know what I mean? I yeah. have so many questions. Um, when Bill did arrive at the home, he first came upon his two-year-old son playing by himself in the playpen set up in the living room who was likely put there by Raider himself. When Bill found Vicky, she was rushed to the hospital, but she was pronounced dead just a few hours later. After Vicky's murder, Raider lays low for a little while. She did scratch the shit out of him a little bit, and he needed to lay low. Like, he needed to just kind of let that heal up before he went all out in public. Police were able to recover DNA from underneath her fingernails. Uh, They went on to test hundreds of men against the sample, but nothing came from it. And in all, there were more than 1,300 samples taken from just random men, which later had to be destroyed. 
Then, in 1988, Grader gets fired from ADT. Good. The official reason (laughs) Raider, the official reason was that Raider wasn't getting his work done on time. There was a lot of reports, though, from his previous co-workers that he was really difficult to work with, despite being customer-oriented. I bet he was customer-oriented. I was gonna fucking say, like, you know why he was. Mm. Gross. (laughs) Knowing what we know now, though, I'm, I'm, I really, really want to know if it's somewhere out on the internet. I couldn't find it. Were there people that interacted with him, like setting up stuff in their house that survived? Like, I'm so curious. There has to be, right? Were you like, this guy is completely normal. And then you saw his face plastered on the news like 25 years later. Like, wouldn't that be insane? Could you imagine being somebody who lived in the neighborhood? When I'd be like clutching my pearls, like, oh, my God. When Maureen was murdered, um, I remember reading a quote from his daughter, obviously, like much later after Raider's arrest. She said something like, um... It was so off-putting after the fact because looking back, I remember my father being the one that was consoling us when we found out that Maureen was dead. And he literally said, don't worry, we're safe. I know. I bet he got off on that. Oh, I'm sure. Consoling his wife and children. And ensure and, and letting the them know. Nice and he's not lying. Was like killed. he wasn't fucking lying because they were safe. And he knew that for a fact. And he knew that for a fucking fact. I know. Ooh, I'm going to shower and bleach later, guys, because, dear Lord, this is terrifying. His daughter went on to write a book. There's actually another one coming out, I think, this year. It just if came it, out at okay. mm-hmm, the beginning of this so year, I think. it's going to go on our book list that it we're going to get to I was eventually. hoping they'd be free on Kindle, but the first one is not yet. Ah, that's okay. You know <laughs> I'll what? I'll get there. She's been through a lot. I feel she like deserves she deserves it. it. <laughs> so, anyways... The moral of the story is that he got fired. We don't fully know exactly why. We just know that it happened. And that's really all that's important. His next gig was working for the U.S. Census Bureau. He was tasked with complying, compiling addresses from May through July. Of why course. do people keep giving him access to things like addresses? Addresses, home security systems. I mean, like, I know that they had no homes. way of knowing Obviously, we can only get this mad about it because we have hindsight. But like, it's true. On paper, he was a perfect it citizen. Doesn't make Brie. me any less frustrated when I read this kind of <laughs> shit. And I'm like, okay, so first he was in- installing security systems. Now he's got every person's fucking address in the and whole all their, all, city. So census details are like people in your household. Do you live alone? Do you have children? Do you yeah. have a spouse? Oh yeah, I didn't even fucking think. Yeah. I didn't even get past the addresses. <laughs> Yeah. What's your income? You could turn that into a conversation about what's your job? Mm. What what hours do you work? So that I think is just as bad as ADT. I agree. I agree. Gross. Oh, Mm. it does make it worse. Right. (laughs) And then to make things even worse, worse, on January 19th, 1991, Raider killed again. This time it was 62 year old Dolores E. Davis. Raider had been on a camping retreat with the Boy Scouts, and some sources say that his son was actually on this retreat as well. He managed to find an excuse to slip away for a couple of hours. He drove over to his parents' house, and that's where he changed into his quote-unquote hit clothes, and then he went on his little merry way to the Baptist Church in Park City, which is where he parked his car and walked over to Dolores' home. He just waited outside until she fell asleep. 
bastard. I hate him. He broke into her home by breaking a glass door at the back of the house with a cement block. Obviously, this noise awakened Dolores, and when she went to investigate, she literally found BTK just standing in her hallway. He used a line about needing money, a car, food, you know, the usual bullshit. Like the others, at this point, he took her back to the bedroom, tied her up, and strangled her to death. Afterwards, he took her from the home, placed her in the trunk of her own vehicle again, drove to the lake, and hid her body under some trees. Then he drove the car back to Dolores' home, wiped it down, went back to his own car. He then changed back into his scout uniform and returned to camp, literally like nothing happened. Later, at some point, he went back with his own car and he actually moved Dolores' body, so she did not wind up being found until February 1st. Right. It's like what? insult to injury, but It's worse. just, I mean, I feel like from the very moment he started his attacks, they escalated into an incredibly violent situation. But I feel like with both Dolores and Maureen, we see even further Well, it's like escalation. Un- unnecessary escalation. Or did, is that what he needed to well, I feel like now make it work for him? Well, I feel like now he's like, well, what can I... What else, what can, else I can I do? How else well, can I feed my fantasies? And I didn't find anything in my research, but I'm curious if he went back to take more pictures or something gross. I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, don't know we that, know that, that, that information he loves... has been released to us yeah. as the public, you know. I wouldn't be surprised. Nor should it be. I don't really want to know, but I'm just <laughs> speculating. I feel like it's probably safe to say yes, because Mm -hmm. just from what we know of him, we know that he likes pictures. We know that he utilizes those to feed his fantasies during his cooling off periods. Like, I wouldn't put that past him at all. Blah. (laughs) Blah. Now, later that year, Raider got a new job working as the Park City Compliance Supervisor. Right. Cool. Duties (laughs) included enforcing laws about animal control, nuisances, and inoperable vehicles. This new position gave him a small amount of authority and a small amount of power, which is likely why BTK didn't kill again. Between the new job and his private time activities, you know, dressing like his victims and reenacting the murders and all of the things, Raider was able to keep his impulses in check. And I did want to just do like a really quick mention that Raider gained a reputation as being a stickler for the rules in this position which I just find really fucking ironic. Like to a disgusting level. He would measure the height of people's lawns and he walked around carrying a a tranquilizer gun. So he obviously was reveling in the authority. During my research, I did find there was one lady that said he euthanized her dog unnecessarily and without telling her. That's, doesn't surprise me, right. unfortunately. I'm sure he took a lot. But you give him the small modicum of power, mm-hmm. and it's like he was just drunk with it. So mm-hmm. he just went off the rails with his tranquilizer gun and his ruler, Chasing apparently. stray dogs around yeah. and just doing all this really crazy shit. And in some instances, not even stray dogs. Well, and I <laughs> People's just... pets. Yeah. Like you, Honestly, that probably thrilled him oh, even I'm, more. I, can only grossly imagine i just find it so fascinating though that this was enough to give him the power and control and you know i was thinking about it earlier after like i got done writing and all this stuff i was like you know it probably was like that because 
he never actually raped his victims. And we know mm-hmm. that that's a big control, control and power thing, yeah. thing. So I wonder if that's why this job with his like spicy time that he had by himself it truly was enough to satisfy the urges because he got he was getting what he needed which is so grossly fascinating to me i just i honestly if i could ask him i just would want to be like but how but you why? you you escalated to that point yeah and then you were just good with measuring lawns and well i think it really animals. fed into his ego because people had to listen to him they had to, had comply. to respect him they had to respect him like I, I, to ordinary people like you or I, yes, we don't want to, be, nobody wants to be disrespected, all that kind of shit. But like, that's not something I that don't we like get seek. off on it. Though. Yeah. Like we're not looking for that in our everyday mm-hmm. life. Whereas that was literally his motivation. This is just so like off textbook, if you will. Yes. Like yeah. Golden State, you saw quite literally, mm-hmm. they, t- I'm sure they teach classes on his escalation specifically uh, because yeah. it followed a very distinctive pattern. Yeah. With Dennis Rader, it's like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Everyone is like, what? It it escalated, it escalated, left turn, take some time off. Yeah. Now I'm in charge of one minor thing, so fuck it, I'm good. Like, what? It's so, it's just so interesting. I'm just so morbidly curious. I, honestly. <laughs> and so, you know, of course, in the background of all of this, the, the police are doing everything that they can to try and solve the BTK murders. Unfortunately, it just wasn't really going well. No. Um, in 1991, the Wichita Police Department got a new lead in the BTK murders, which prompted them to assemble a cold case squad. The lead fizzled. Police never disclosed any details regarding it. Again, with cases like this, they want to keep it close to the vest. Mm-hmm. When you truly get the guy, he'll know details that nobody else does type right. deal. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Because how else are you going to know that somebody's telling the truth and they're not just regurgitating what was in the What public? they read in the newspapers, Yeah. yeah. Um, however, former detective Mike McKenna personally believed that this murderer, BTK, was likely still a part of their community. So he was still out there somewhere. We don't mm-hmm. know where, but he there. <laughs> I also find it really interesting that we kind of see different members of law enforcement's like opinions and thought processes on the case as we go through time. On April 10th, 1996, Rader was appointed to the Sedgwick County Animal Control Advisory Board on the recommendation of then-County Commissioner Betsy Gwynn. He would resign two years later. I just kind of thought this was an interesting bit because I just feel like it kind of solidifies the power and authority angle because this was another kind of step above. Like, this dude had an office in City Hall. That is terrifying isn't that wild (laughs) he is a serial murderer a self-named crazy Um, person and he's like i also work at city hall but again though that's just a testament to how good of a facade this man was Mm -hmm. putting on like he had the wool pulled over everybody's eyes well and you know at that you know how like they say with compulsive liars they're like they're able to lie because they truly believe their Mm -hmm. lie like I feel like it's totally possible that it might not like it was a facade. Yes. But also like that probably was very much a part of who he was like it really if he was capable of love. It seems like he loved his kids. It seemed like he loved his wife. He did what he could to protect them from his shenanigans. 
I think it's just so weird. Like how much of it is a facade? How much of it is his actual personality? Like what, where's the line? Again, that dichotomy of like those two faces. I just I don't know how they live in the same person. Yeah. Right. Like that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Ooh. And the amount of self-control that Raider had to exhibit on a daily basis too. It really <laughs> makes me wonder just so what alarming. it was like living with him. Like, yeah. I really want to read this daughter's book. Now. I know. <laughs> Like I said, it was on my list. I was gonna, I got ahead. So I was like, maybe I'll read it. And I went looking on my Kindle, but that, that was as far as I got. We want to do like a true crime based kind of book club vibe thing. So if that's something you guys are interested at some point, let us know. Cause I got a whole list. We're doing it probably regardless. It's true. (laughs) It's true. When we hit up Barnes and Noble, that'll be on my list. (laughs) All right. So in 1997, we, we're bringing out the big guns now, guys. <laughs> Robert Ressler, I don't know if you know this guy or not, but he's the former FBI agent who first supplied the term serial killer. So the man sort of knows what he's talking about. If you don't know who he is, you need to get it together. Right. You should look this him up. Is one person, there's one of two people you should absolutely know if you love true crime. Mm-hmm. He's one of them. So he wound up helping the Wichita police by outlining a profile of BTK. He said that... The man was likely a graduate student or a professor in the criminal justice field at WSU in Kansas, so Wichita State University. The man was likely in his mid to late 20s at the time of the killings. He was probably an avid reader of books and newspaper stories concerning serial murders slash his own murders, I feel. (laughs) Um, Ressler ultimately believed that the suspect had moved away from Wichita, died, or was locked up somewhere. This was mostly because the pattern of BTK's murders hadn't been seen in Wichita for quite some time. Ressler went on to say, quote, I've learned that if a man gets the opportunity, he will do devious things. He has a dark side, whether it's poisoning his neighbor's roses or killing his neighbor, end quote. I find that quote so fascinating in light of what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. Because it makes me wonder, was measuring the lawns enough? It certainly seems like it on the surface. Temporarily, I think it would have been, yeah, but definitely not indefinitely. Yeah. I think. I mean, that's what makes the most sense, I feel. Mm -hmm. Now, the other person you should absolutely know is (laughs) FBI profiler John Douglas. He's like the other important guy when it comes to a, a lot of the things that we, he is one of the reasons we know what we know about serial killers. So he shared his insights into BTK in his own book titled Obsession. Another one going on the list. There was a whole chapter dedicated to BTK called Motivation X. So Douglas states that the killer's letters to the police had so much detail that he, Douglas, is convinced that the perpetrator had taken his own crime scene photos. Check. Right. (laughs) He went on to say that this was likely done so the killer could have like a keepsake of the crime to fantasize about later. Mm-hmm. Check. Right. Mm-hmm. The killer also used police lingo in his letters. Douglas thought that he may have been a cop or possibly impersonated being one. The suspect likely read detective magazines and may have even bought a police badge for himself. Not quite a check, but also it's a not, not line, a check. Like sort of kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> approximately. <laughs> uh, he also said that the killer would attempt to insert himself into the investigation And that he would be tempted to brag and or leave hints about what he had done, which we saw that happening a little bit. And 
way is it going to escalate it's here in just a hot minute? It's going to so much worse. <laughs> the killer was likely a loner, inadequate, in his 20s or 30s, might possibly have an arrest record for break-ins or voyeurism, but probably no actual rapes. Hmm. Check. I find... No arrests, but yeah, all of those things. I do find it really fascinating that... Like, act, like that rape was not part of this. Mm-hmm. It's just so, it just, I don't know. It, obviously, there I don't want no it words. to happen. <laughs> well, but yeah. like, I just find it so odd it, considering it, his. It's very off stereotype, if you will. Well, and with his particular motivations, his particular fantasies, like all this stuff, it just seems odd to me that that's not part of it. But I think that's part of what to me makes this case super interesting because he doesn't follow he does and doesn't at the same time there's so many there's so many things that i'm like wow this is textbook and then there's the whole other half where i'm like wait what like what is even happening here i don't understand yeah you think you know but you have no idea (laughs) now fast forward to january 2004 shit's about to get crazy this case has gone cold officially It also happened to be the 30th anniversary of BTK's first murders. So a local paper ran a feature in which it was speculated that the killer had either died or likely been imprisoned. Now we know that Raider really fucking hates it when people try to credit others for his work. And this article prompted him to begin communicating with the police slash media again. Mm -hmm. And this is this is the beginning of his undoing. If the man could have kept his ego in check, we would not be sitting here talking about him right now. We would be talking about an unsolved case. We'd be talking about BTK, but we certainly wouldn't be talking about Dennis Dennis Rader. Dennis Rader specifically. Mm -hmm. So in March of that year, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from someone using the name Bill Thomas Kilman. Mm. IDK if you can sense it, but it's B T. Okay. <laughs> it didn't take the police long to figure out what was happening here. In this letter, the author took responsibility for the murder of Vicki Wegerly. They even included photocopies of both her driver's license, which was missing from the scene, and pictures that were taken at the crime scene. Not the police ones either. No. Photocopies of photocopies mm-hmm. of photocopies of that. Again, not to keep bringing up Mindhunter, but there's a very specific scene in the <laughs> show obsessed. where I, it's just crazy because, like, I never really looked into BTK much until we, like, dove into him for this. And so now kind of looking back at these scenes, there was, like, a whole scene where the person portraying Dennis Raider was standing at a copy machine and he was just making a shit ton of Xerox copies. And now the I can, copies. like, completely mm-hmm. understand. And he was. He was, like, taking it out of the thing and Xeroxing what was just... And, at the time watching the show, I was just engrossed in the story and not really paying attention. And now I'm like, holy shit. It's weird. The details that once you know, you're like, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you And you can't not notice that. You can't them. unsee it. Yeah. yeah. So things were a little quiet just for a couple of months. Then in May, TV station KAKE, which I read as cake while I was writing this <laughs> in Wichita, they received a letter with a chapter headings for quote-unquote the btk story as well as a couple of fake ids and a word puzzle now raider has some fucked up sense of confidence and a fucked up sense of humor i think because he took his taunting to like a whole new level he used cereal boxes at one point he wrote some of the letters on them he also used them for like holding things later on we'll get to 
And now he's just including like puzzles and shit. Like he's just Get really serial killer in a serial <laughs> box. But I'm, I'm not gonna lie, my fantasy football name was the serial killers. That's funny. And I would use somebody online, bless your heart, whoever you are, did mashups of rappers like Nelly and Snoop with serial characters like the honeybee <laughs> from the Cheerios. Yeah, that's it was glorious. Hilarious. I'm just saying that's super funny. Not everybody has that. I have a twisted sense of humor, but not to this level. <laughs> Dear Lord, there is a, a there's a line, big line, <laughs> very big, very distinct. I'm nowhere near it. No. Um. What was interesting about this this letter, and we didn't actually learn this until much later, but there were some puzzle sleuths that realized that the letters R-A-D-E-R, which spell Raider, are grouped around the numbers 6220, which, plot twist, was the address at which the Raider family lived. This motherfucker was so confident in his ability to not get caught he literally gave them his address. I think he thought in his head that he was the Zodiac killer. He literally Zodiac, like puzzles. Also. Yes. I was just telling one of my coworkers that today her and I were talking about this case and I was like, it's fucking crazy how similar it is. Mm-hmm. He copied him. He wishes you're <laughs> not even you're not even original. <laughs> All right. Anyways. So the next communication from BTK was received on June 9th, 2004. It was found taped to a stop sign located close to the Wichita Police Department itself. The package included graphic descriptions of the Otero murder- murders and a sketch labeled, quote, the sexual thrill is my bill, mm. end quote. Also enclosed was a chapter list for a proposed book titled The BTK Story, This mimicked a story written in 1999, so before this fact, by Court TV crime writer David Lohr. The first chapter was titled, A Serial Killer is Born. Hmm. These serial killers and their obscure books that they like to... Well, and also, so that means you're keeping tabs on yourself. Right. What other people are saying about you. It's cool, cool. He's... (laughs) that, And that, again, it just speaks to the ego and to the arrogance and what he likes, like... He, there was one quote from one of the articles that I read when um, somebody was like analyzing his behavior during all of this. And he was like, of course, Raider would not, he would have preferred to not have gotten caught. But there was a huge part of him that very likely wanted to tell people about what he did because he was proud of it. Like lay claim to it. Like I did it. I mean, why else? Again, there. how many times was he able to just walk away scot-free but his own need for recognition caused him to put himself back into the spotlight of police like why is he do why why are you doing this why he simply just couldn't stand it he couldn't stop i don't think like it's almost as if this impulse was more severe than the impulses to murder well i mean because he stopped (laughs) right that's what i'm saying like it's just so this so what you're you're i don't even understand you're measuring lawns and chasing dogs gave you enough power but like this you couldn't let go right that doesn't make any fucking sense bro bro (laughs) now the next month a package was dropped into the return slot at the public library he's getting real creative with where he's dumping all this shit it contained 
more bizarre materials, which included a confession to a murder that actually had occurred earlier that month. But turns out this claim was ultimately ruled to be false because the death in question was actually ruled as a suicide after this letter, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just was kind of... Because police were like, well, fuck, we have to look into this. Mm-hmm. So they sent everybody out to look at it. And the coroner, I believe, was Concluded like, mm, that it yeah. was not likely murder. Yes. In October of that same year, a manila envelope was dropped into a local UPS box. Inside, there were many cards that had terrible images pasted on them. Examples, just one is horrible enough. Um, children in bondage situations. There was also a poem that threatened Lieutenant Ken Landwehr's life directly. He was the lead investigator at the time, so that makes sense. And an autobiography included, all in the envelope. Some of the details in the autobiography were released to the public a month later. And we're going to go through them, some of the things. Because some of them... Are false. Some, Some of them, them are not really false. close to true. <laughs> so BTK claims he was born in 1939. Dennis Rader was born in 1945. So false. BTK claimed that his father had died in World War II. So he was actually raised by his mother and grandparents. We know that that's false because his mother and father raised him. Mm-hmm. He has a fascination with railroads. And for five years in the 50s, his mother dated someone who worked on one. Also false. See reason above. Also in the 50s, he built and operated a ham radio. I don't really know one way or the other, but it wouldn't surprise me. Being a Cub Scout leader Mm -hmm. of that era, I would think that would be a thing. It definitely. And I did a really quick Google search because I wanted to make sure I knew like what I was thinking was correct. And it was very much like, what are they? I think my mom called it like a CB radio. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much that. So I could definitely see that for him. Yeah. So that one's ambiguous. Question mark. (laughs) Um, BTK has knowledge of photography and can develop and print pictures. We're going to go with this is likely true because he did have to develop the crime scene pics somehow. Not all of them were Polaroids, I don't think. And I'm sure he wasn't taking them to like what their local Walgreens. So back in the day, Polaroid cameras were ginormous Mm -hmm. and then they got really small and I have one that is ginormous again. So I'm just (laughs) saying some things come full circle. Yeah. Ain't nobody toting around a gigantic Polaroid camera in the 70s. I think they're so cool, though. They are. Not related, but kind of. (laughs) They're very interesting. Not for murder purposes. Right. (laughs) For fun purposes. Yes. Um, According to the autobiography, BTK likes to hunt, fish, and camp. This also could very well be true. Again, he was the Cub Scout leader, all that jazz. Hunt, fish, camp. Um, He claimed he went to tech school in 1960, which was not true. Not a thing. (laughs) He claimed that he joined the military and was later discharged in 1966. This is half true. He enlisted in 1966 and he was actually discharged in 70. He worked at repairing copiers and business equipment. That's false. He just liked to utilize copiers like, (laughs) whoa. And he admitted to soliciting sex workers, which we don't know one way or the other. I don't really buy it. I don't think so. Because I feel like if that was something that BTK liked to do there would probably have been other like other things happening at the scenes yes you know what i mean right well because we've found that 
the actual rape part was not part of his interest. It's not what he was there so, for. That's not what he wanted. I don't think he was interested in that at all. Right. So From I would, strangers. So I would find it hard to believe that that was true. Mm. Well, it doesn't mean that it isn't. I we know. couldn't find anything one way or the other with that one. You so. never know with this person. Yeah, right. <laughs> So in December, the police received another package from BTK. This one was found in Murdoch Park. It included Nancy Fox's driver's license and a doll that he had bound at the hands and the feet before putting a plastic bag over the doll's head. The following year in January, KAKE received a postcard telling them where they could find a box of Post Toasties cereal and what they would actually find inside said box. Now... Raider didn't plan this one out very well because he took the box of cereal and left it in the bed of a random truck that was parked at a Home Depot. The vehicle's owner found the box, thought it was garbage, threw it out. When the TV station got this postcard, police frantically were trying to find this guy and his truck. They did, in fact, actually find him, and police were able to locate the discarded box of cereal. Now, luckily for the police and everyone everywhere <laughs> home depot has surveillance cameras in their parking lot and sure enough you can see a distinct figure or a distant figure driving a black jeep cherokee leaving the box in the truck bed now the next month kake received more postcards and there was another cereal box left at a more remote location this box contained another bound doll Police were able to convince the station to keep quiet about the postcards until March 1st, likely to see if that would draw BTK out, Drama I would imagine. Or more correspondence of some Something. variety, yeah. During this time, police and Raider began actively communicating with each other via want ads in the newspaper. In one of them, Raider actually asked the officers if floppy disks were traceable. Bro. Bro. Remember floppy disks? Bro. Also, they're going to tell you that they're untraceable no matter what. You know that, right? Why did you Mr. even Murderer, ask the sir? fucking question in the first place? This is what gets me about Goodness this guy. Gracious. Honestly. <laughs> and like Sue said, of course, the police fucking lied. They said that he would be totally safe to send his writing oh, to them. Send them He's in. like, please do, actually. You're going to be fine. There's no way we could track any of that shit. So on the 16th of February, Raider sent a purple 1.44 megabyte Memorex floppy disk to a Fox affiliate in Wichita, KSAS-TV. Also include, included with the disk was a gold-colored necklace that had a large medallion on it and a photocopy of the cover of the novel Rules of Prey, written by John Stanford in 1989 about a serial killer. Also, that's going on the list. Yes. It's fiction, but yes. Yes. <laughs> so police, because they lied, now have this wealth of information found in this floppy disk. So they get right to work and they found something. Their first concrete lead in, I think, ever. Yeah. Like uh, ever. Mm -hmm. There was mega data embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document still stored on the disk. So you can get rid of it, bitch, but it's still going to be there. Okay. This data contained the words Christ Lutheran Church, as well as the name of the person who last modified the document, one Dennis. <laughs> For the first time, law enforcement has a name and an incredibly tangible lead slash place to start their search at. 
A quick internet search revealed that one Dennis Rader was the president of the church council. Investigators did a drive-by of Raider's home, and sure enough, there is a black Jeep Cherokee in the driveway. The police are automatically like, this is our guy. Our evidence is pretty strong, but it's circumstantial. So mm. authorities wanted more direct evidence before trying to detain him, which I get if you're going to close it. As you want to close it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like I would, I'm inclined to agree with them. Like, you want to make sure that you're going to have like one very clearly he's, he's enjoying this back and forth game right he's not murdering anybody now you know where he lives you know what he drives you know what he looks like so you mm-hmm. can at least have eyes on him at yeah. all times 100 so we're feeling pretty confident here so i yes. do have a problem <laughs> with what they did next i will preface this by saying i'm very glad that this awful atrocious person got caught and in jail but i don't know how i feel about the way they went about it because they went about getting more evidence in like the most icky way so raider's daughter had recently actually had a pap smear done at the kansas state university medical clinic police obtained a warrant that allowed them to take that sample and test it against the DNA evidence collected from some of the scenes. Most specifically, I think they used the um, evidence underneath, from underneath Vicky's fingernails. Yes. If I remember correctly. Now, the results came back showing a familial match between the two samples, which meant that the killer pretty much absolutely had to be not even just related, but closely related to Raider's daughter. Like within one generation type status. There was not a question about that. Right. It was very, very clear. And this was exactly what they needed to execute an arrest, which they did on February 25th, 2005. It was lunchtime and Raider was driving to his home. Once the police had him in custody, one of the officers asked if he had any idea why he was being arrested. And his response was, Oh, I have suspicions. Why? Gross. Direct quote, by the way. He also followed that up with, uh, hey, could, would you please call my wife? She was expecting me for lunch. I assume you know where I live. Ooh. Also a direct quote. The audacity. Even when he was in the fucking cop he's car still being in handcuffs, he's still like, fuck you, officer. <laughs> like, what? Hmm. So immediately following this arrest, Raider's home was searched by local PD, the FBI, the KBI, which is the Kansas Bureau of Investigations, the ATF. They went in and they seized all sorts of stuff, computer equipment, a pair of black pantyhose found in a shed, which if you're keeping them in a shed, Mm. you're using them for nefarious purposes. (laughs) I'm just putting that out there. I immediately don't trust your purpose with this. Um, They also found a cylindrical container that held, God only knows what they haven't told us. I don't actually think I I want to know. I'm Mm -mm. good. Nope, nope, nope. Thanks, though. Also found on the property was a false bottom space in the hallway of the home. This was where he stored drawings and newspaper clippings, which were, I don't know if you guys guessed it, but all about BTK. (laughs) Law enforcement also searched his church, his office at City Hall, and the main branch of the Park City Library. After it was all said and done the next morning, police chief Norman Williams announced, quote, the bottom line, BTK is arrested, end quote. Boom. Fine. Fucking yes. Yes. It was a pretty crazy moment that I would liken to when the Golden State Killer 
was yeah. finally caught. See, that one's more fresh in my mind. This was long enough ago where it's not, we didn't have instant access to it yeah. on our phones like we did with I was still Golden a teenager State. when that happened. I remember reading about it. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it, but it wasn't like it was all over Facebook and Twitter. Right. And, yeah. Or, excuse me, X and everything. Because, <laughs> I mean, MySpace was the thing then and it wasn't quite the cesspool that social media is mm-hmm. now. Uh but yeah, like I think I mentioned it last time is that my grandmother was really big into true crime. She's the one that got me into the shit in the first place. And she was just so stunned that there was an arrest made. Like I remember her and my mom talking about it. So it was. I, I think mean, this was one of the unsolvables. They mm-hmm. didn't ever think they would have an answer. Yes. This and Golden State were the two that was really stuck in my brain as like those two. Zodiacs up there, but. Everybody's got know, theories on that. What it is about that. the Zodiac that I'm just like, Meh. Disinterested in it? I think it's just because they're unsolved cases are just, this is going to sound so gross, but I'm sure you guys know what I mean. Not very satisfying to me. Like, I just, I need to know. I hate being left with questions. Right. I have to know everything. And there's nowhere you can go with that. Right. My, if the police can't figure it out, I don't know that we ever will, no, but absolutely we'll not. try our and damnedest. I, refu- I refuse to be like those true crime cr- content creators that are like going to like crime scenes trying yeah. to like be a detective. Like I'm going to leave that to the people who are trained. Like absolutely. I'll talk to you about it all day long, but I'm not going to like go and try to investigate myself. No, thank you. I'm terribly unlucky. That would not end well. Okay, so on February 28th, 2005, Raider was officially charged with 10 counts of first degree murder. His family, neighbors, fellow church members, everybody were just, they were absolutely stunned by the news. Quite literally, yeah. Um, An anonymous source alleged that Raider had confessed to other murders in addition to the ones he had already been connected to. The DA denied this story. They refused to say whether Raider had made any confessions or if investigators were looking into his possible involvement in more killings. On March 1st, Raider's bail was set at $10 million. Uh, One to three public defenders were appointed to represent him. It kind of depends. It seems to depend on the source. He at least had one. He had up to three. (laughs) On March 5th, news sources verified that Raider had confessed to the 10 murders he was charged with, but not to any others two months later on may 3rd the judge entered a not guilty plea on raider's behalf because he chose not to speak at his arraignment which i'm not gonna lie when i was doing my research i was like this man who cannot shut the fuck up right says nothing right in court not even to say i'm guilty or i'm not guilty you had so much to say (laughs) so many letters no so much responsibility taking for the murders. And now all of a sudden you can do it on like the the national stage and nothing. Oh, it's infuriating. <laughs> it makes me so mad. Oh. On June 27th, however, which actually coincidentally was the scheduled beginning of trial date, um, Dennis Rader changed his plea to guilty. As a part of his plea, because you know he fucking got one, he went on to describe the murders in great... Great, great, terrifying detail. Mm -hmm. He made absolutely zero apologies for any of his actions. Many observers noted that he described the gruesome events without any sign of remorse or emotion. And again, 
there's video recordings mm-hmm. there's there's audio recordings yep. if you'd like to listen there's transcripts that you can find out there i think it's his voice that creeps me out though because he's so matter of fact it's like he's mm-hmm. talking about what he had for dinner mm-hmm. yesterday or, or how high your grass should the be the weather is or yeah it it's nothing to him yeah these people mean nothing to mm-hmm. him 100 percent he did all that researching and stalking and being creepy and they don't matter. They're just a number. It's almost like they're lab rats. Like yes. it's gross. It's scary too that and somebody scary. can be so detached but and gross. it's really off putting to watch people like that speak and, and to tell all of this kind of detail. Right. Ugh. Right before his plea. However, psychologist Robert Mendoza was hired by Raiders Public Defenders. They wanted to conduct a psychological evaluation. They were trying to determine if an insanity plea may be viable. And that's the thing, though. Like, he's obviously insane, but I don't feel like he's insane in the sense that, like, yeah, you know, like. He's not mentally insane. He's right. criminally insane. Right. Yeah. I guess. Think, like, I think that's what I was trying yeah. to say. <laughs> I like couldn't get the words out. Mentally, he's very put together. There, the, to the a degree. The premeditation alone, I but, feel yeah. like, would take an insanity plea off the table. But I'm not 100% sure, sure if that's how that works. Either way, after Raider's guilty plea, he was interviewed by Mendoza. This guy diagnosed him with narcissistic, antisocial, and obsessive compulsive personality disorders, which all checks out. checks out. He observed that Raider had a grandiose sense of self, as well as a belief that he is special and entitled to special treatments. Mm-hmm. Also checks out. He had a pathological need for attention and admiration. We've seen yeah. that play out. He had a preoccup- preoccupation... With maintaining rigid order and structure. We saw that play out with the whole grass situation. He showed a complete lack of empathy throughout the entire interview. Yes. And all the time. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Forever and always. Uh, so this interview was actually recorded and later used on Dateline. NBC claimed that Raider knew the interview might be televised, but according to the sheriff's office, this was not true. So Mendoza wound up being sued for breach of contract with a claim of benefiting financially from the use of information obtained through involvement in Raider's defense, which I could see that. Right. (laughs) On May 10th, 2007, the case was settled for $30,000 with Mendoza not admitting to any wrongdoing. So I do think the information that he garnered was valuable Mm -hmm. because all of it's true. Right. But you were just trying to make a buck. Yeah. Kind of tarnishes the the information that you... Well, and like, it makes your... makes it easy to doubt the information that you obtained as well. Yeah. Yeah. Like, how unbiased were you in that evaluation? If you were like counting money. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, sentencing for Raider occurred on August 18th. The victim's families were allowed to make impact statements. After their statements, Raider apologized in a rambling 30-minute monologue. The prosecutor, the prosecutor actually likened this to an Academy Awards acceptance speech, which I could see. Mm-hmm. Totes. His statements had been described as an example of an oft-observed phenomenon among psychopaths. It's essentially their inability to understand the emotional content of language. Yeah. 
Which, like, that's one of those things, like, that I really can't wrap my brain around because, like, to me, words hold, like, such a weight and they're so important and your tone and your inflection and the emotion in which you're trying to convey, like, I can imagine not having that be a part of my daily life, let alone having to interact with somebody who is like that. And for him to be able to get away with it for so long, he had to have been pretty good at copying people. Well, and to raise kids who said that he was tough and strict but loving. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, what? <laughs> at the... Girl, I cannot... <laughs> There's a lot of noise making from us this episode. We Ooh, just can't handle we're it. We're so sorry. <laughs> it comes out in, uh... <laughs> So at the end of the day, Dennis Rader was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences with a minimum of 175 years. So it's life. Forever and ever. Yep. Kansas had no death penalty at the time of the murders. Not you. Did you hear that? The murders, <laughs> not like the trial and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So he was not subject to that punishment. Later investigations focused on unsolved cases after 1994 when the death penalty was reinstated in Kansas because I I don't know that investigators are mad, but I think they want to solve cold cases. Mm -hmm. If you can tie it to somebody like this and perhaps also put the death penalty back on the table for someone this horrible, I think they're willing to go to those lengths. Mm Um, They looked into surrounding states like Nebraska, Missouri, Colorado, Oklahoma, and Texas specifically, investigating the cold cases. The FBI and local jurisdictions from when Raider was in the military were also investigating cold cases. So they were out there. There were so many people trying to tie him to anything else, pretty much, I feel. Mm -hmm. Which I don't blame them. It makes sense. Now that you know for sure that he was the one that did these things. I think that it's the next logical step to be like, well, what else? What else did you do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause it, again, like those long lengths of times in between murders was just, it's, it was uncommon then it's still uncommon. It's not like a thing. Still traveling for work, for cub scouts, for church. So honestly, guys, I think it's possible. 100%. (laughs) Now, there were no further murders attributed to Raider at this time. They thought correctly that Raider would have taken responsibility if he had committed further murders, which I do think that that makes a lot of sense. I think that it is likely that he would want to share that information. However, I could also see him keeping some things to himself for himself. Right. Even it is believed that Raider did uh, research slash stock other potential victims so we don't really know exactly where that all has settled raider did state in his police interview that quote there are a lot of lucky people end quote meaning that he had thought about and developed various levels of murder plots for further victims he just never either didn't get the chance to carry them out or whatever dot 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 right on august 19th he was moved to the el dorado correctional facility On the 40-minute drive there, he talked about banal things like the weather, how his day was going, you know. However, allegedly, he began to cry when the victim's family's statements were from the court were, like, came on the radio. Because this was all anybody was talking about. Right. Especially in Wichita specifically. Mm -hmm. So they were airing snippets and stuff on the radio, on the television, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Um, So... 
he was and is still in solitary confinement for his own protection. He gets one hour of exercise a day and three showers per week. This is likely to continue indefinitely because I think there are some people out there that would take pleasure in taking him out. Oh, I'm sure. And I would not judge them at all. (laughs) I also would imagine it'd be a clout thing. Oh, for sure. There's a lot of weird hierarchy that Mm -hmm. we don't understand, but (laughs) I know it exists. That's something I definitely we want to like dive into one of these days is like kind of like the jail system just as a whole. I think that would be really interesting. Oh, absolutely. Like a podcast version of like locked up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, um, on July 26, 2005, Raider's wife was granted an emergency divorce. So this meant that they can waive the normal 60-day waiting period. And it really kind of was rough for her. And the media was ruthless and accused her of knowing more than she let on about the crimes and the man behind BTK. I don't buy it. I don't don't buy it. Um, During their marriage, Paula did say that she saw signs that something was amiss, but she didn't recognize them as actually being signs until much later. She did wind up finding an early poem titled Shirley Locks with the line, quote, thou shalt not scream, outlay on cushion and think of me and death, end quote. Mm. So, but again, if you don't have any context, you're like, well, this is weird, but. Yeah. What am I going to do with it? You know what I mean? It probably was just kind of one of those things that just went to the back of her mind. She didn't really think about it until later. Um, She also did notice that her husband had marked up newspaper stories about the serial killer with his own like self-described secret code. That was also weird to her. But again, it was an isolated incident with no, not much no context, context behind yeah. it. Yeah. Her husband did write her letters that contained similar awful spelling like the BTK letters. She did at one point say, you spelled just like BTK. And then they were like, (laughs) I feel like that was the first moment where she was like, I think that maybe like in the very back of her mind, there was just like a little maybe a question mm -hmm. or like a little inkling. Just like a little tickle of a thought. I was like. This is weird. Obviously, there was a gut feeling. She just wasn't entirely sure what that was. And I think we've all been there before. Well, like, you you would never want to think something like this. It's 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 like <laughs> the that father saying, of your children. Right. Like, no, it's like that saying when you hear hooves think horses, not zebras like this yeah. is a zebra situation here. Right. How you can't. I don't know. I don't believe that she knew anything more. Um, <laughs> Despite her even knowing that he had this mysterious box in their home that she did not ever open. And this was a uh, Raiders quote unquote mother load. It contained mementos from the various BTK scenes. It had dead women's underwear, dead women's driver's licenses, pictures of him dressed up in his victims, underwear, choking himself and even burying himself alive. How did he, how did he do that? timers on cameras that leads me to believe he knows more about photography than any Mm, of us do yeah Mm -hmm. he did like to reenact the ways he had killed them he did like to take pictures of all that he actually went on to say part of my mo was to find and keep the victim's underwear then in my fantasy i would relive the day or start a new fantasy In 2006, he was, for some reason, allowed access to TV and radio, the ability to read magazines, and other privileges for good behavior. If I know nothing else about this man, 
he can behave when he wants to to get what he wants i also don't trust him with magazines because one thing that he used to do when he was a kid was he would cut out pictures of magazines and draw on them as if the the women were Mm -hmm. in bondage i'm sure he still does it probably not a great thing he probably shouldn't have this privilege but Uh, that's just my opinion i know (laughs) just putting that out there Um, In 2019, Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie, said she still writes to her father. However, they have not spoken on the phone, and she has not visited him in prison. She said that she has forgiven him, but still struggles to reconcile the father that she knew with the BTK killer. I can only imagine. I cannot even imagine. I can't even put that into my (laughs) realm of thought. Yes. She said her childhood seemed normal and they were, quote, a normal American family. She said her father was at worst a moral Christian. She did recall one occasion specifically on which Dennis grabbed his son by the neck and Carrie and her mother had to pull Dennis off of his son to save his life. I wonder if that was around. There were glimmers. That near miss Mm -hmm. that he had. When he was angry. Livid, if you will. If that's the only instance where something like that happened and there was only one time where he was not able to follow through on an attack, I would be very, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm just kind of like pulling shit out, but I would love to know approximately when that happened. Um, She did go on to write a book. It's called A Serial Killer's Daughter, My Story of Faith, Love and Overcoming. It came out in 2019. The sequel, Breaking Free, Overcoming the Trauma of My Serial Killer Father, came out this year, 2023. Again, they're on the list. I The second one sounds super interesting. Especially, like, I'm going through my own shit right now, kind of, like, overcoming some things. And so I am even more interested to know, like, how how do you overcome something like that this this seems to me so insurmountable yeah to grow up with one person mm-hmm. and realize that they were somebody completely different everything I just you knew was essentially was a, lie, a lie or like you said like a facade to mm-hmm. some extent like i can't i don't wait know how you reconcile that yeah <laughs> now july 21st 2023 in a so letter, last month. <laughs> literally last month, in a letter to Fox News Digital, Raider compares himself to the Gilgo Beach murder suspect Rex Humerman. Humer, I can't pronounce his last name. I think Humerman, but yeah. I don't actually know. I'm trying to avoid this because it makes me <laughs> real angry. Um, he called him a clone of myself based on the similarities of their cases. Uh, Rex was arrested and charged with six counts of murder in connection to the deaths of three women. Yeah, there's, I think there's going to be more, too, in that case. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Because <laughs> that one's very active right now, also, mm-hmm. so. I. Am... But it's yet another cold case that was not, not decades ago, but it was long enough ago. See, I'm not super familiar with this one, because I just, I really do have to limit how much true crime kind of stuff I consume. Mm-hmm. Um, So I try not to do too much outside of preparation for our own podcast only because gotta protect my mental health (laughs) and sometimes this can be a little much um so i'm not really familiar with that case i'll admit the google beach murders it was on i watch id network Mm because i love deadly women and you know through the decades and stuff like that but it, it was on one of those and 
they didn't have a suspect. They just kept finding bodies in this marshy land. Mm. And it's, it's, there's one girl specifically at some point, I'm sure we'll get to her. She's not actually a part of this case yet, Mm. but she is what led every, she's what led people to the bodies of these girls. Yeah. It's a very, very twisty case because they think it might be a dumping ground for multiple killers. Oh. Right. Hmm. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Right, (laughs) right. And? On that note. On that note. This is BTK in a nutshell. Yeah. So I would love to know your thoughts, your feelings, your opinions. This guy's the worst, right? (laughs) Did you guys learn something? Because we sure as fuck did. Yeah. A lot more than I wanted to, but it's very fascinating. His his psyche is I find it interesting what our brains will also like not really put together because like I always knew what BTK stood for, but I guess I never really thought much past that. Right. Like what the actual MO would have to entail. I guess I thought it was just concerning the murders. Yeah. I didn't realize that he also took it into his personal life. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those pictures alarming i'm telling you if you want to go search the net i hate to encourage you but i feel like you have to go see them i've scrolled through two and i was like it's not we're done it's (laughs) not for the faint of heart yeah you definitely gotta like prepare yourself but it was i'm not mad i went to go look i mean we'll put it like that (laughs) i'm sort of sad it takes up space in my brain that's fair but i will i will persevere guys we'll get through this somehow (laughs) And at any rate, thank you for joining us today, guys. You have no idea how much your continued support means to us. Um, Make sure, if you can, that you're following the podcast on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, we are at Crime and Spirits Pod. On TikTok, yeah, yeah, we're mm-hmm. at Crime and Spirits Podcast. None, No more of that X shenanigans. We're yeah. just pulling ourselves right out of that race. I've had it. <laughs> I just go on there to help out the Podmoth Network friends. Other than that, <laughs> it's all garbage. Um, for now, our social media consists of a lot of ingredient lists. We always post those a couple days before the episode launches. So if you want to sip along with us, you know what you need. Of course, there's recipes. There's fun videos showing you how to make each drink. And we're going to start diving into some more true crime-based posts and things like that, too. I'm excited to show you what we've been working on. If you would like to follow us personally, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at Brie underscore not the cheese. And I'm at Suze, not Susan. If you're into what we're doing over here, please go leave us a rating and or review. We love it. Um, It also really helps us and it really does make our day when we see people responding positively to it. It's the best fucking feeling that I think I've ever felt before. Uh, If you would like to recommend a case or perhaps a cocktail, specific liquor, anything like that that you want us to check out specifically, please email us at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you're interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash that link. All right. So many heebie-jeebies that we're going to have to shake off with our little corny joke here. So much. So, why are frogs so happy? I don't know, but why? Because they eat whatever bugs them. (laughs) That's good. I I love it. I love it so much. But don't... Because everything's bugging me lately, so I felt like that was appropriate. (laughs) I love frogs. I have a few days off of work now, 
Yeah, as you. of today, yeah, you my do. birthday is coming up. It's a couple days after the release of this episode. And so I'm really needing it. I'm jealous, excited. I'm jealous. I needed it. It's a big, it's not a big birthday. I just like to celebrate my yeah. birthday. Birthdays are always big. On that note, I appreciate you guys being with us all the time. Please continue to enjoy your adult beverages responsibly. The last thing that Susan and I want is for you to leave our time hanging out together and do something stupid. Yeah, don't do it. Don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt others. Just stay home. Have a snack. Drink a glass of water and just, you know, hang out. Chill. I hope you guys have the best rest of your day and we will catch you next time. Bye. Bye.